The following is a reading from the Works of Christ in America by Cotton Mather, Volume 2, an appendix containing an history of some criminals executed in New England for capital crimes, with some of their dying speeches. We find in Zanger the mention of a city besieged by a potent enemy, where the inhabitants took the dead body of the starved people and set them in armor on the walls at the site whereof the amazed enemy fled. One of the New England ministers, beholding vice besieging his country as an enemy, singled out a company of dead wretches to set upon the walls, in hopes that the horrible sight would cause that worst enemy to fly before it. He published unto the country an history of criminals, which may be here over again published as a fit appendix to an history of remarkable judgments. For indeed in these criminals the remarkable judgments of God were wonderfully exemplified. Number 1. Pillars of Salt It has been thought that the dying speeches of such as have been executed among us might be of a singular use to correct and reform the crimes in which too many do live. And it has been wished that at least some fragments of those dying speeches might be preserved and published. Upon this advice, from some good persons, I have stolen an hour or two, in which I have collected some accounts of several ill persons which have been cut off by the sword of civil justice in this land. In this collection, I suffer to go abroad in hopes that, among many other essays, to suppress growing vice, it may signify something with the blessing of heaven thereupon, to let the vicious understand what have been the cries of our miserables when passing into another world. Behold in history of criminals whom the terrible judgments of God have thunderstruck into pillars of salt. Number 1. About the year 1646 here was one Mary Martin, whose father, going from hence to England, left her in the house of a married man, who yet became so enamored on her that he attempted her chastity. Such was her weakness and folly that she yielded to the temptations of that miserable man, but yet with such horrible regret of mind, begging of God for deliverance from her temptations, her plea was that if ever she were overtaken again, she would leave herself to his justice to be made a public example. Heaven will convince the sinful children of men that the vows which they make, relying on the stability and resolution of their own hearts, are of no significance. A chain of hell was upon her, and the forfeited grace of heaven was withheld from her. She fell a third time into the sin against which her vows had been uttered. Afterwards, going to service in Boston, she found herself to have conceived, but she lived with a favorable mistress who would admit and allow no suspicion of her dishonesty. A question like that convincing one of our saviors unto the woman of Samaria was once oddly put unto her, Mary, where is thy husband? And one said also, Did I not think that you were an honest and sincere creature? I should verily think you were with child. These passages, which were warnings from God to her guilty soul, only served to strike her with amazement, not with any true repentance. She concealed her crime till the time of her delivery, and then being delivered alone by herself in a dark room, she murdered the harmless and helpless infant, hiding it in a chest from the eyes of all but the jealous God. The blood of the child cried when the cry of the child itself was thus cruelly stifled. Some circumstance quickly occurred which obliged her friends to charge her with an unlawful birth. She denied it impudently. A further search confuted her denial. She then said the child was dead-born and she had burned it to ashes. With an hypocritical tear she added, Oh, that it were true that the poor babe were anywhere to be seen. At last it was found in her chest, and when she touched the face of it before the jury, the blood came fresh into it, so she confessed the whole truth concerning it.
Great endeavors were used that she might be brought to a true faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the pardon of her blood guiltiness. And it may be none endeavored it more than that reverend man, old Mr. Wilson, who wrought several sheets of pathetical instructions to her while she was in prison. That renowned man, old Mr. Cotton, also did his part in endeavoring that she might be renewed by repentance and preached a sermon on Ezekiel 16, 20, and 21. Is this of thy whoredoms a small manner that thou hast slain my children? Whereof great notice was taken. It was hoped that these endeavors were not lost. Her carriage and her imprisonment and at her execution was very penitent. But there was this remarkable at her execution. She acknowledged her twice as saying to kill her child before she could make an end of it. And now through the unskillfulness of the executioner she was turned off the ladder twice before she died. In other words, Cotton Mather was saying that twice they tried to hang her and were not successful before the third time in which she died. Story number two. There was a miserable man at Weymouth who fell into very ungodly practice, but would particularly signalize his ungodliness by flouting at those fools, as he called them, who would ever confess any sins laid to their charge. This man lived in abominable adulteries, but God at length smote him with a palsy. His dead palsy was accompanied with a quick conscience, which compelled him to confess his crimes. But he confessed them so indiscreetly that by their divulging they reached the ears of the authority, and in this confession there was involved and concerned the wretched woman who chiefly had been concerned with him in the transgression. By the law of this country, adultery was in a capital transgression, as it has been in many other countries, and this poor adulterer could not escape the punishment which the law provided. Story number three. On June 6, 1662, at New Haven, there was a most unparalleled wretch, one Potter by name, about sixty years of age, executed damnable bestialities. Although this wretch had been for now twenty-two years a member of the church in that place, and kept up among the holy people of God there a reputation for serious Christianity, it seems that the unclean devil which had the possession of this monster had carried all his lust with so much fury into this one channel of wickedness that there was no notice taken of his being wicked in any other. Hence it was that he was devout in worship, gifted in prayer, forward in edifying discourse among the religious, and zealous in reproving the sins of the other people. Everyone counted him a saint, and he enjoyed such a peace in his own mind that in several fits of sickness in which he seemed nigh unto death, he seemed willing to die. Yea, death, he said, smiled on him. Nevertheless, this diabolical creature had lived in most infidious buggeries for no less than fifty years together, and now at the gallows there were killed before his eyes a cow, two heifers, three sheep, and two sows, with all of which he had committed his brutalities. His wife had seen him confounding himself with a bitch ten years before, and he then excused his filthiness as well as he could to her, but conjured her to keep it secret. But he afterwards hanged that bitch himself, and then returned to his former villainies, until at last his son saw him hideously conversing with a sow. By these means the burning jealousy of the Lord Jesus Christ at length made the churches to know that he had all this while seen the covered filthiness of this hellish hypocrite, and exposed him also to the just judgment of death from the civil court of judicature. Very remarkable had been the warnings which this hell hound had received from heaven to repent of his impieties. Many years before this, he had a daughter who dreamed a dream, which caused her in her sleep to cry out most bitterly. 
and her father then, with much ado, obtaining of her to tell her dream, she told him she dreamed that she was among a great multitude of people to see an execution, and it proved her own father that was to be hanged, at whose turning over she thus cried out. This happened before the time that any of his cursed practices were known to her. At another time, when there was a malefactor adjudged in those parts to die, for the very same transgressions which this rotten fellow was guilty of, the governor, with some of the magistrates, most unaccountably without any manner of reason for their so doing, turned about to this fellow and said, What do you think? Is not this man worthy to die? He now confessed that these warnings did so awaken his conscience as to make him for a time leave off his infernal debauches. And so he said, He thought all was pardoned, all was well with him. Nevertheless, he returned unto his vomit in his quagmire until the sentence of death at last fell upon him, and then he acknowledged that he had lived in the sin of bestiality ever since he was ten years old, but had sometimes intermitted the perpetration of it for some years together. During his imprisonment, he continued in a sottish and stupid frame of spirit, and marvelously secure about his everlasting pardon and welfare. But the church whereto he belonged kept a solemn day of humiliation on this occasion, in which Mr. Davenport preached on Joshua 22, verse 20, Did not Achan commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on the congregation of Israel? And at the close of the first, that faithful people of God excommunicated this accursed Achan from their own society. But as I have seen by which self-poisoners, under a singular energy of some devil, obstinately refuse all offered relief until the poisons had prevailed so far that all relief was too late, and then with roaring agonies they would have given ten worlds for it. So this bewitched beast that had not been afraid of dying till he came to the place of execution, when he came there he was awakened into a most unutterable and intolerable anguish of soul, and made most lamentably desperate outcries, among which outcries he warned men particularly to take heed of neglecting secret prayer, which he said had been his bane. He said he never used secret prayer in his life, and that he frequently omitted family prayer too, yet he said he had prayed and sinned and sinned and prayed, namely by ejaculations with which he contented himself, throwing set prayer aside. But so he perished. Number four. An English ship in the year 1673, sailing from somewhere about the mouth of the straits, was manned with some cruel miscreants, who quarreling with the master and some of the officers turned them all into the longboat, with a small quantity of provisions about an hundred leagues to the westward of the Spanish coast. These fellows in the meantime set sail for New England, where by a surprising providence of God, the master with his afflicted company in the longboat also arrived, all except one who died of the barbarous usage. The countenance of the master was now come terrible to the rebellious men, who, though they had escaped the sea, yet vengeance would not suffer to live ashore. At his instance and complaint they were apprehended, and the ringleaders of this murderous piracy at a sentence of death executed on them in Boston. Under that sentence there was heard among them a grievous lamentation for this, their education had been under the means of grace and the faithful preaching of the gospel in England, but they had sinned against that education. And one of them sadly cried out, Oh, it is my drunkenness, it is my drunkenness that has brought me to this lamentable end. The horrors which attended the chief of these malefactors, one Forrest, in the last hours of his life, were such as exceedingly astonished the beholders, 
Though he were a very stout man, yet now his trembling agonies and anguishes were inexpressible. One speech let fall by him was, I have been among drawn swords, flying bullets, roaring cannons, amidst all which I knew not what fear meant, but now I have dreadful apprehensions of the dreadful wrath of God in the other world which I am going into. My soul within me is amazed at it. Story number five. On March 18, 1674, two men whose names were Nicholas Fever and Robert Driver were executed at Boston. The crime for which they were executed was the murder of their master, whom upon the provocation of some chastisement which he had given them, they knocked him on the head with an axe in their bloody rage. After they were condemned, they bestowed their lamentations not only on the particular crime which had now brought them to their untimely end, but also on some others for which their consciences told them that the righteous God had left them to this. One of them said his pride had been his bane, for he thought much of it, that such a one as he should be a servant, and he would sometimes utter such words as these, I am flesh and blood, as well as my master, and therefore I know no reason why my master should not obey me as well as I obey him. And now, he said, see what my pride has brought me to. One of them also said that his idleness had ruined him. He would not industriously follow his calling, but live an idle, slothful, vagrant life. This, he said, had undone him. And one of them said that his disobedience to his parents had brought this misery upon him. His father, he said, gave him good instructions when he was a child, but he regarded them not. He would not go to a school when his father would have sent him to it. He would not go to a trade when his father would have put him to one. After his father was dead, he would not be subject to them that had the charge of him. He ran away from them, and after that he ran away from several masters. Thus he ran into the jaws of death. These things are particularized in the sermon preached just before their execution, afterwards printed under the title of The Wicked Man's Portion. Story number six. On September 22nd, 1681, one W.C. was executed at Boston for a rape committed by him and a girl that lived with him, though he had then a wife with child by him of a 19th or 20th child. This man had been wicked over much. His parents were godly persons, but he was a child of Belial. He began early to shake off his obedience to them, and early had fornication laid to his charge, after which he fled into a dissolute corner of the land, a place in which it might be said, Surely the fear of God is not in this place. He being a youth, under the inspection of the church at Roxbury, they, to win him, invited him to return to his friends with such expressions of lenity towards him that the reverend old man, their pastor, in a sermon on a day when the man was executed, with tears bewailed it. After this, he lived very dissolutely in the town of Dorchester, where, in a fit of sickness, he vowed that. If God would spare his life, he would live as a new man, but he horribly forgot his vows. The instances of his impiety grew so numerous and prodigious that the wrath of God could bear no longer with him. He was ripened for the gallows. After his condemnation, he vehemently protested his innocency of the fact for which he was condemned. But he confessed that God was righteous thus to bring destruction upon him for secret adulteries. A reprieve would have been obtained for him if his foolish and forward refusing to hear a sermon on a day appointed for his execution had not hardened the heart of the judge against him. He who had been a great scoffer at the ordinances of God now exposed himself by being left to a, such a sottish action. He had horribly slighted all calls to repentance, 
and now through some wretches over-persuading of him, that he should not die according to sentence and order of the court, he hardened himself still in his unrepentant frame of mind. When he came to the gallows and saw death, and a picture of hell too, and a negro then burnt to death at the stake for burning her master's house, with some that were in it, before his face never was a cry for time, time, a world for a little time. The inexpressible worth of time uttered with the most unutterable anguish. He then declared that the greatest burden then lying upon his miserable soul was his having lived so unprofitably under the preaching of the gospel. Number 7. On March 11, 1686, was executed at Boston one James Morgan for an horrible murder. A man finding it necessary to come into his house, he swore he would run a spit into his bowels, and he was as bad as his word. He was a passionate fellow, and now, after his condemnation, he much bewailed his having been given to cursing in his passions. The reverend person who preached to a great assembly on the day of this poor man's execution did, in the midst of his sermon, take occasion to read a paper which he had received from the malefactor then present in the assembly. It was as follows. I, James Morgan, being condemned to die, must needs own to the glory of God that he is righteous and that I have by my sins provoked him to destroy me before my time. I have been a great sinner, guilty of Sabbath-breaking, of lying and of uncleanness, but there are especially two sins in which I have offended the great God. One is that sin of drunkenness, which has caused me to commit many other sins. For when in drink I have been often guilty of cursing and swearing and quarreling and striking others. But the sin which lies most heavy upon my conscience is that I have despised the word of God, and for many a time refused to hear it preached. For to these things I believe God has left me to that which has brought me to a shameful and miserable death. I do therefore beseech and warn all young persons, young men especially, to take heed of these sins, lest they provoke the Lord to do to them as he has justly done by me. And for the furthest peace of my own conscience, I think myself obliged to add this to my foregoing confession, that I own the sentence which the honored court has passed upon me to be exceeding just, inasmuch as, though I had no former grudge and malice against a man whom I have killed, yet my passion at the time of the fact was so outrageous, as that it hurried me on to the doing of that which makes me now justly proceeded against as a murderer. After the sermon, a pastor at his desire went into the place of execution with him, and of what passed by the way, there was a copy taken which here ensues. The discourse of the minister with James Morgan on the way to his execution. Minister, I am come hither to answer your desires, which just now you expressed to me in the public, that I would give you my company at your execution. Morgan, dear sir, how much am I beholden to you? You have already done a great deal for me. Oh, who am I that I have been such a vile wretch that any servants of God should take notice of me? Minister, I beseech you to make this use of it. I believe there is not one Christian this day beholding you who would not willingly be at the greatest pains they could devise to save your precious soul. How merciful, then, is that man who is God as well as man! How unspeakably ready is the Lord Jesus Christ to save the souls of sinners that affectionately look unto him! The goodness and pitifulness of the most tender-hearted man in the world is but a shadow of what is in him. The compassions of any man compared with the bowels of a merciful Jesus are but as a painted sun or a painted fire in comparison of the real.
Morgan, oh, that I can now look unto him as I ought to do. Lord, help me. Minister, well, you are now a dying man. The last hour or two of your life is now running. You know yourself now to stand just on the brink of eternity. You shall presently be in a state of wonderful happiness or of horrible misery, which must endure forever. Which of these estates do you now count yourself stepping into? Morgan, oh, sir, I am afraid, but I am not without hope that God may have mercy on me. Minister, what's your ground for that hope? Oh, see that your confidence be not such as God will by and by reject. Morgan, I don't know well what to say, but this I hope is a good sign. I have lived in many grievous sins in lying, drinking, Sabbath-breaking, and evil company-keeping. God has made now these so bitter to my soul that I would not commit them again might I have my life this afternoon by doing it. Minister, that's a great word. May God grant it may not be a word only, the good word of a good pang, without such a thorough change of heart as you must have if you would not perish everlastingly. You are not like to have any longer time in this world to try the sincerity of your profession. Morgan, I know it, and I beseech you, sir, to help me what you can. I hope the means used with me since my condemnation has not been lost. Minister, I would not have the sense of the pain and shame which your body is about to undergo anyways hinder your mind from being taken up about the soul manners which I shall endeavor to set before you. Morgan, sir, as for the pain that my body must presently feel, I manner it not. I know what pain is, but what shall I do for my poor soul? I am terrified with the wrath of God. This, this terrifies me. Hell terrifies me. I should not mind my death if it were not for that. Minister, now the Lord help me to deal faithfully with you, and the Lord help you to receive what he shall enable me to offer unto you. Mark what I say. You were born among the enemies of God. You were born with a soul as full of enmity against God as a toad is full of poison. You have lived now how many years? Morgan, I think about thirty. Minister, in all these thirty years have you been sinning against the holy God. Ever since you knew how to do anything, you have every day been guilty of innumerable sins. You deserve the dreadful wrath and curse of the infinite God. But God has brought you here to a place where you have enjoyed the means of grace. And here you have added unto your old sins most fearful iniquities. You have been such a matchless, prodigious transgressor that you are now to die by the stroke of civil justice, to die before your time for being wicked overmuch. There is hardly any sort of wickedness which you have not wallowed in. That sin particularly which you are now to die for is a most monstrous crime. I can't possibly describe or declare the sins in which you have made yourself an astonishing example of impiety and punishment. Morgan, oh sir, I have been a hellish sinner. I am sorry for what I have been. Minister, sorry, you say? Well, tell me which of all your sins you are now most sorry for. Which lies most heavy? Morgan, I hope I am sorry for all my sins, but I most especially bewail my neglect of the means of grace. On Sabbath days I used to lie at home or be ill-employed elsewhere. When I should have been at church, this has undone me. Minister, and let me seriously tell you, your despising of Christ is a most dreadful sin indeed. You have for whole years together had the call of Jesus Christ to seek an interest in him. And you would now give all the world for that interest, but you would take no notice of him. The Jews of old put him to a worse death than yours will be this afternoon. And by your contempt of Christ, you have said the Jews did well to do so. 
How justly might he now laugh at your calamity, and for these sins of yours, besides the direful woes and plagues that have already come upon you, you are now exposed to the vengeance of eternal fire. You are in danger of being now quickly cast into those exquisite amazing torments, in comparison of which the anguishes which your body ever did feel or shall feel before night, or can ever feel, are just nothing at all, and these dolorous torments are such as never have an end, and many sands could lie between this earth and the stars in heaven would not be near so many as the ages, the endless ages of these torments. Morgan but is there not mercy for me in Christ? Minister, yes. And it is a wonderful thing that I have now further to tell you. Mind, I entreat you. The Son of God has become the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man in one person. And he is both sufficiently able and willing also to be your Savior. He lived a most righteous life. And this was, that such as you and I might be able to say before God, Lord, accept of me as I had lived righteously. He died at length a most cursed death, and this was, that we might be able to say unto God, Lord, let me not die for sin, since thy son died in my room. This glorious Redeemer is now in the highest heaven, pleading with God for the salvation of his chosen ones. And he pours out his Spirit continually upon them that believe on him. Might you then be enabled by his grace to carry your poor, guilty, condemned, enslaved, ignorant soul unto Jesus Christ, and humbly put your trust in him for deliverance from the whole bad state which you are brought into? Oh, then his voice is to you the same that was to the penitent thief, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Morgan, oh, that it might be so. Sir, I would hear more of these things. I think I can't better fit myself for my death than by hearkening to these things. Minister, attend then. The never-dying spirit that lodges within you must now within a few minutes appear before the tribunal of the great God. In what or in whose righteousness will you then appear? Will you have this to be your plea? Lord, I experience many good motions and desires in my soul, and many sorrows for my sins before I died. Or will you expect to have no other plea but this? Lord, I am vile. By thy Son is a surety for the worst of sinners that believe on him. For his sake alone have mercy on me. Morgan, I thank God for what he has wrought in my soul. Minister, but be very careful about this matter. If you build on your own good affections instead of Jesus Christ, the only rock, if you think they shall recommend you to God, he that made you will not have mercy on you. Morgan, I would be closed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Minister, but you can't sincerely desire that Christ should justify you if you don't also desire that he should sanctify you. These two always go together. Is every lust that has hitherto had possession of your heart become so loathsome to you that it would fill your soul with joy to hear Jesus Christ say, I will subdue those iniquities of thine, I will make an holy and heavenly a spiritual-minded person of thee? Morgan, I would not sin against God any more. Minister, but I must deal plainly with you. You have made it sadly suspicious that your repentance is not yet as it ought to be. When men truly and thoroughly repent of sin, they used to be in a special manner watchful against that sin which has been their chief sin. One of your principal sins, which has indeed brought you to the death of a murderer, is passion, unmortified and outrageous passion. Now I have been this day informed that no longer since than the last night, upon some dissatisfaction about the place which the authority has ordered you by and by to be buried in, you did express yourself with an unruly passion. 
Morgan, Sir, I confess it, and I was quickly sorry for it, though for the present I was too much disturbed. "'Twas my folly to be so careful about the place where my body should be laid "'when my precious soul was in such a condition. "'Minister, truly you have come to mourn for it, "'secure the welfare of your soul, "'and this now pinioned, hanged, vile body of yours "'will surely be raised unto glory, glory forevermore. "'And let me put you in mind of one thing more. "'I doubt not you have not yet laid aside your unjust grudges "'against the person's concern in your conviction and condemnation.' You have no cause to complain of them, and you are not fit to pray, much less are you fit to die till you heartily wish them as well as your own soul. If you die malicious, you die miserable. Morgan, I heartily wish them all well. I bear ill will to none. What a lamentable thing is this. Ah, this is that which has brought me hither. Minister, what do you mean? Morgan, I overheard a man mocking and scoffing at me when I stumbled just now. He does very ill. I have done so myself. I have mocked and scoffed like that man, and see what it has brought me to. He may come to the like. Minister, the Lord forgive that foolish-hearted creature, but be not too much disturbed. Morgan, yonder, I am now come in sight of the place where I must immediately end my days. Oh, what a large multitude of people has come together on this occasion. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, I pray thee to make my death profitable to all this multitude of people, that they may not sin against thee as I have done. Minister, Amen, Amen ten thousand times, the Lord God Almighty say Amen to this prayer of yours. It would indeed be an excellent thing if you would now come to receive your death with some satisfaction of soul in the thought, that much glory is like to come to God by it. I am verily persuaded God intends to do good to many souls by means of your execution. This is a greater honor than you are worthy of. After the discourse had been intermitted about a minute or two by reason of the miry way, Morgan, I beseech you, sir, speak to me. Do me all the good you can. My time grows very short. Your discourse fits me for my death more than anything. Minister, I am sorry that so small a thing as a plashy street should make me lose one minute of this more than ordinary precious time. A few paces more bring you to the place which have now in your eye, from whence you shall not come back alive. Do you find yourself afraid to die there? Morgan, sir, if it were not for the condition that my soul must by and by be in, I should not fear my death at all, but I have a little comfort from some of God's promises about that. Minister, and what shall I now say? These are among the last words that I can have liberty to leave with you. Poor man, thou art now going to knock at the door of heaven. And I beg and cry, Lord, Lord, open to me. The only way for thee to speed is to open the door of thy own soul now unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this, and you shall undoubtedly be admitted into the glories of his heavenly kingdom. You shall fare as well as Manasseh did before you. Leave this undone, and there is nothing that remains for you but the worm which dieth not, and the fire which never shall be quenched. Morgans, sir, show me then again what I have to do. Minister, the voice, the sweet voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was hanged on a tree, to take away the sting and curse of even such a death as yours, unto all that close with him. The heavenly voice now is, Oh, that I and my saving work might be entertained, kindly entreated in that poor perishing soul of thine. Are you willing? Morgan, I hope I am. Minister, his voice further is, If I am lodged in thy soul, I'll sprinkle my blood upon it, and on my account thou shalt find favor with God. Do you consent to this? Morgan, this I want. 
minister. But this is not all that he says. His voice further is, If I come into thy soul, I will change it. I will make all sin bitter to it. I will make it an holy heavenly soul. Do you value this above the proffers of all the world? Morgan, I think I do. And now, sir, I must go no further. Look here, what a solemn sight is this. Here lies a coffin which this body of mine must presently be laid in. I thank you, dear sir, for what you have already done for me. Minister, when you are gone up this ladder, my last service with you before you are gone off will be to pray with you. But I would here take my leave of you. Oh, that I might meet you at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ in that last day. Farewell, poor heart. Fare thee well. The everlasting arms receive thee. The Lord Jesus, a merciful Savior of souls, take possession of thy spirit for himself. The great God, who is a great forgiver, grant thee repentance unto life, and glorify himself in the salvation of such a wonderful soul as thine forever. With him, and with his free, rich, marvelous, infinite grace, I leave you farewell. Being arrived under the place of execution, his last speech upon the ladder then taken in shorthand, was that which is here inserted, quote, I pray God that I may be a warning to you all, and that I may be the last that ever shall suffer after this manner. In the fear of God I warn you to have a care of taking the Lord's name in vain. Mind and have a care of that sin of drunkenness, for that sin leads to all manner of sins and wickedness. Mind and have a care of breaking the sixth commandment where it is said, Thou shalt do no murder. For when a man is in drink, he is ready to commit all manner of sin, till he fill up the cup of the wrath of God, as I have done, by committing the sin of murder. I beg of God, as I am a dying man, and to appear before the Lord within a few minutes, that you may take notice of what I say to you. Have a care of drunkenness, and ill company, and mind all good instruction, and don't turn your back upon the word of God, as I have done. When I have been at meeting, I have gone out of the meeting house to commit sin and to please the lusts of my flesh. Don't make a mock at any poor object of pity, but bless God that he has not left you, as he has justly done me, to commit that horrid sin of murder. Another thing that I have to say to you is, to have a care of that house where that wickedness was committed, and where I have been partly ruined by, but here I am, and know not what will become of my poor soul, which is within a few minutes of eternity. I have murdered a poor man, who had but little time to repent, and I know not what has become of his poor soul. Oh, that I may make use of this opportunity that I have. Oh, that I may make improvement of this little, little time before I go hence and be no more. Oh, let all mind what I am saying now. I am going out of this world. Oh, take warning by me and beg of God to keep you from the sin which has been my ruin. His last words were, O Lord, receive my spirit. I come unto thee. O Lord, I come unto thee. O Lord, I come, I come, I come. Story number eight. One Hugh Stone, upon a quarrel between himself and his wife about selling a piece of land, Having some words as they were walking together on a certain evening, very barbarously reached a stroke at her throat with a sharp knife, and by that one stroke fetched away the soul of her who had made him a father of several children, and would have brought yet another to him if she had lived a few weeks longer in the world. The wretched man was too soon surprised by his neighbors to be capable of denying the fact, and so he pleaded guilty upon his trial. There was a minister that walked with him to his execution, and I shall insert the principal passages of the discourses between them, in which the reader may find or make something useful to himself, whatever it were to the poor man, 
who is more immediately concerned in it. Minister, I'm to come to give you what assistance I can, and you're taken of the steps which your eternal will or woe now depends upon the will or ill taking of. Hugh Stone, Sir, I thank you, and I beg you to do what you can for me. Minister, Within a few minutes your immortal soul must appear before God, the judge of all. I am heartily sorry you have lost so much time since your first imprisonment. You had need use a wonderful husbandry of the little piece of an inch which now remains. Are you now prepared to stand before the tribunal of God? Hugh Stone, I hope I am. Minister, and what reason for that hope? I find all my sins made so bitter to me that if I were to have my life given me this afternoon to live such a life as I had lived heretofore, I would not accept it. I had rather die. Minister, that is well, if it be true. But allow me a little to search into the condition of your soul. Are you sensible that you were born a sinner? Did the guilt of the first sin committed by Adam is justly charged upon you? And that you have hereupon a wicked nature in you, full of enmity against all that is holy and just and good, for which you deserve to be destroyed as soon as you first came into this world? I am sensible of this. Are you further sensible that you have lived a very ungodly life, that you are guilty of thousands of actual sins, every one of which deserves the wrath and curse of God, both in this life and that which is to come? I am sensible of this also, minister. But are you sensible that you have broken all of the laws of God? You know the commandments. Are you sensible that you have broken every one of them? I cannot well answer to that. My answer may be liable to some exceptions. This I own, I have broken every commandment on the account mentioned by the Apostle James, that he who breaks one is guilty of all, but not otherwise. Minister, alas, that you know yourself no better than so. I do affirm to you that you have particularly broken every one of the commandments, and you must be sensible of it. I cannot see it. But you must remember that the commandment is exceeding broad. It reaches to the heart as well as the life. It excludes omissions as well as commissions. And it at once both requires and forbids. But, I pray, make an experiment upon any one commandment in which you count yourself most innocent, and see whether you do not presently confess yourself guilty thereabout. I may not leave this point slightly passed over with you. Hugh that commandment thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image, how have I broken it? Minister, thus you have had undue images of God in your mind a thousand times. But more than so, that commandment not only forbids our using the inventions of men in the worship of God, but it also requires our using all the institutions of God. Now have you not many and many a time turned your back upon some of those glorious institutions? Indeed, sir, I confess it. I see my sinfulness greater than I thought it was. You ought to see it. God help you to see it. There is a boundless ocean of it. And then for that sin which has now brought a shameful death upon you, it is impossible to declare the aggravation of it. Hardly an age will show the like. You have professed yourself sorry for it. I am heartily so. But your sorrows must be after a godly sort. 
not merely because of the miseries which it has brought on your outward man, but chiefly for the wrongs and wounds therein given to your own soul, and not only for the miseries you have brought on yourself, but chiefly for the injuries which you have done to the blessed God. I hope my sorrow lies there, minister, but do you mourn without hope? I thank God I do not. Where do you see a door of hope? In the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died to save sinners. Truly, there is no other name by which you may be saved. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is that alone in which you may safely anon appear before the judgment seat of God. And that righteousness is, by the marvelous and infinite grace of God, offered to you. But do you find, as you have no righteousness, so you have no strength, that you cannot of yourself move or stir towards the Lord Jesus Christ, though you justly perish if you do not run to him, that it is the grace of God alone which must enable you to accept of salvation from the great Savior? Hugh, sir, my case in short is this. I have laid myself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation, and had it not been for his mere grace and help, I had never been able to do that. But there I have laid and left myself. I have nothing to plead why he should accept of me. If he will do it, I am happy, but if he will not, I am undone forever. It had been good for me that I had never been born. Minister, and you must justify him if he should reject you. You surprise me with at once giving me so much of the discourse, which all this while I have been laboring for. I can add but this, the good Lord make you sincere in what you say. Your crime lay in blood, and your help also, that lies in blood. I am to offer you the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that in which you may now have the pardon of all your sins. Now you may try the sincerity of your faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus for a pardon by this. Do, sir. The blood of the Lord Jesus is not only sin-pardoning blood, but also soul-purifying and heart-softening blood. It embitters all sin unto the soul that it is applied unto and mortifies every lust in such a soul. Are you desirous of this? With all my heart. The Lord make you so. The Lord seal your pardon in that blood which is worth ten thousand worlds. But what will you do for that God who has given you these hopes of a pardon? You must now, with a holy ingenuity, do something for the honor of that God whom you have sinned so much against. Hugh, what shall I do? Minister, why confess and be well the sins that have undone you, and publicly advise and exhort and charge all that you can to take heed of such evil ways? I will endeavor to do it as God shall help me. I pray, tell me, what special sin do you think it was that laid the first foundation of your destruction? Where did you begin to leave God and ruin yourself? It was contention in my family. I had been used unto something of religion, and I was once careful about the worship of God, not only with my family, but in secret also. But upon contention between me and my wife, I left off the ways of God, and you see what I am come to. Minister, I would pray you to vomit up all sin with a very hearty detestation. You are going, if I may so speak, to disgorge your soul, if you do not first cast up your sin. If your soul and your sin come away together, you cannot but know something of the dismal condition which it must pass into. Oh, what cause have you to fall out with sin forever? 
It has been your only enemy. Here is the only revenge which you may allow in yourself. You must not now bear any malice against any one man in the world, but forgive even those that have done you the greatest injuries. Only upon sin be as revengeful as you can. I would have you like Samson, so did I, taken of a just revenge. I hope I shall. Minister, well, we are now but a very few paces from the place where you must breathe your last. You are going to take a most awful step, which has this most remarkable in it, that it cannot be twice taken. If you go wrong now, it cannot be recalled throughout the days of eternity. I can but commit you into the arms of a merciful Redeemer, that he may keep you from a miscarriage which cannot be recalled and redressed throughout eternal ages. The Lord show unto you the path of life. Attend unto these as the last words that I may speak before the prayer with which I am immediately to take a long farewell of you. You are now just going to be confirmed forever. If the great God presently find you under the power of prejudice against any of his truths or ways, or of enmity against what has his blessed name upon it, you shall be fixed and settled and confirmed in it until the very heavens be no more. But they are very terrible plagues and pains which you may be sure will accompany this everlasting disposition of your soul. On the other side, if God now find your soul under the power of inclination to love him, fear him, serve him, and to esteem the Lord Jesus Christ above a thousand worlds, you shall then be confirmed in the perfection of such a temper and of all the joy that must accompany it. Which of these is the condition that I now leave you in? Sir, I hope the latter of them. The good God make it so, and grant that I may find you at the right hand of the Lord Jesus in the day of his appearing. May this ladder prove as uh, Jacob's ladder for you, and may you find the angels of the Lord Jesus ready here to convey your departing soul into the presence of the Lord. After this discourse, ascending the ladder, he made the following speech. Young men and maids, Observe the rule of obedience to your parents and servants, to your masters, according to the will of God, and to do the will of your masters. If you take up wicked ways, you set open a gate to your sins, to lead in bigger afterwards. You cannot do anything, but God will see you, although you think you shall not be caught. You think to hide yourself in secret, when, as God in heaven can see you, though you hid it from man. And when you go to thievery, your wickedness is discovered and you are found guilty. O oh, young woman that is married and young man, look on me here. Be sure in that solemn engagement you are obliged to one another. Marriage is an ordinance of God. Have a care of breaking that bond of marriage union. If the husband provoke his wife and cause a difference, he sins against God. And so does she in such carriage, for she is bound to be an obedient wife. Oh, you parents that give your children in marriage, remember what I have to say. You must take notice when you give them in marriage. You give them freely to the Lord, and free them from that service and command you ought to have. Yet you ought to have a tender regard to them. Oh, you that take no care to lead your life civilly and honestly, and then commit that abominable sin of murder. Here is this murderer. Look upon him, and see how many are come with their eyes to behold this man that abhors himself before God. That is the sin I abhor myself for, and desire you take example by me. There are here a great many young people, and ah, O Lord, that they may be your servants. Have a care. Don't sin. 
I will tell you that I wish I never had had the opportunity to do such a murder. If you say when a person has provoked you, I will kill him, it is a thousand to one, but the next time you will do it. Now I commit myself into the hands of Almighty God. The Prayer of Hugo O Lord, our good God, you are a merciful God and a gracious and loving Father. Alas, that you should nourish up children that have rebelled against you. O Lord, I must confess. You gave me opportunity to read your written word. You are also my creator and preserver. But Lord, I have not done according to the offers of your grace. You have not hid from me the opportunities of the good things and liberty of your house and ordinances. But I have waxed wanton under the enjoyment of them. I have given you just cause to provoke you to anger. And you have left me to shame, not only on myself, but on my relations. O Lord God, I do confess that I have sinned against you and done all these iniquities against you and before your eyes. Lord, I have sinned especially against you. Pardon my sins of youth. Lord, pardon this bloody sin I stand here guilty of. O Lord, hide not thy face from me. I humbly beg it of you. For there is no man can redeem his brother's soul, but only the blood of Jesus Christ must do it. Let it be sufficient to satisfy for my poor soul. I have not done anything that you should be pleased to show me your love, or that I should have anything from you but only everlasting misery. I am unworthy to come to you, yet, Lord, for your mercy's sake, have pity on me. Now I am coming to judgment, Lord. Let the arms of your mercy receive my soul, and let my sin be remitted. Good Lord, let not my sins which condemn me here in this world rise up to condemn me in the world to come. Though they have condemned me in this world, show mercy, Lord, when I come before your judgment seat. If my soul be not humbled, Lord, humble it. Let my petition be acceptable in heaven, your holy mountain. I am unworthy to come into your presence. Yet, O oh, let me come into thy kingdom and deliver my soul from blood guiltiness and the blood of Jesus Christ. O oh, let my wounded soul mourn for my sin that has brought me here. Sin brings ruin to the poor soul. Woe is unto me for mine iniquity. If I had gone to prayer in the morning when I committed the sin, Lord God, you would have kept back my hands from shedding innocent blood. O oh, gracious God, remember thou me in mercy. Let me be an object of your pity and not of your wrath. The Lord hear me and pardon my sins. Take care of my poor children. I have scattered them like straggling sheep flying before the wolf. Pity the poor children that go like so many lambs that have lost your keeper, that they may not come to see such a death as I do. Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of your Son, accept my soul and receive me into the arms of your mercy, that I may enjoy everlasting rest. Pardon all my sins, and let the prayers of all those that put up their petitions for me be accepted for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now I am coming, now I am coming. Thou mayest say, I called to you, and you would not come. I must say, my sin brought me here. Oh, the world and the corrupt nature of man that has proved my ruin. Oh, Lord, good Lord, let me enjoy rest for my soul. The desire of my soul is to be with you in your kingdom. Let me have a share in that kingdom. Now is the time, Lord Jesus, the grave is opening its mouth. I am now living, though dead in sin. Let my prayers be heard in heaven your holy place. Your hands have made me, and I know you can save me. Hide not your face from me, and affect the hearts of your people with this, 
when you have had your head full of drink, the remembrance of God is out of your heart, and you are unprepared to commit yourself and family to God. You are unfit to come into God's presence. I have caused to cry out and be ashamed of it, that I am guilty of it, because I gave way to that sin more than any other, and then God did leave me to practice wickedness and to murder that dear woman, whom I should have taken a great deal of contentment in, which, if I had done, I had not been here to suffer this death. You are holy, just, and good, and therefore, O Lord, have mercy on me for the sake of your Son. Pity me. Now, Lord, I am coming. Oh, that I could do you better service. Many of you that behold me, I know wish you never had seen me here. Lord, receive my soul into a better place if it be your blessed will. It is a day of great trouble with me. My soul is greatly troubled. Give me one glimpse of comfort in your kingdom. By and by, let me have one dram of your grace. Accept of me now at this time. Tis the last time. Good Lord, deny me not. Give me as a woman of Samaria a taste of that living water that my soul may thirst no more. I beg it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. After this, he was by the prayers of a minister then present, recommended to the divine mercy, which being done, the poor man poured out a few broken ejaculations, in the midst of which he was turned over into that eternity which we must leave him in. The speech of Hugh Stone in the prison the morning before his execution. When young people are married, they make use of prayer in their families, and when they pray, they do believe there is sincerity and affection in their prayer. But when difference between a man and his wife arises, then that does occasion hindrance of prayer in their family, and when prayer is wholly omitted, it lets in all confusion and every evil work. He said that he used to pray in his family, but when he did pray it was in a formal manner. But now from the consideration of eternity that we was going into, he was made the more considerate in his prayers that he had made, and did hope that now he had the spirit of prayer in his praying. In the year 1694, a miserable Indian called Zachary was executed for murder. He understood so very little English that it put the English minister, who after his condemnation visited him, unto an inexpressible deal of trouble to convey to him the principles and the directions of our holy religion. But the Lord so succeeded the endeavors used upon the wretched savage, that within a little while he could give a sensible, though a shattered, account of the fundamentals in Christianity. And such an impression had the doctrines of grace upon him, that he professed himself desirous rather to die than to live at his own sinful rate. He seemed even to long for his execution, that so he might be delivered from all disposition to sin against God. But all his hopes of everlasting salvation he seemed very suitably to place on the obedience which the Lord Jesus Christ had yielded to God in the room of sinners. Of this poor creature nothing had been here mentioned, if it had not been to introduce the mention of this one passage. He said that the thing which undid him was this, he had begun to come and hear the preaching of the gospel among the Indians, but he minded the Indian preacher how he lived, and he saw plainly that the preacher minded his bottle more than his Bible. He loved rum too well, and when his rum was in him, he would quarrel with other people and with himself particularly. This, he said, prejudiced him against the gospel. So he lived as a pagan still and would be drunk too, and his drunkenness had brought all this misery upon him. 
Story number 11. In the year 1698 was executed at Springfield one Sarah Smith. Her despising the continual counsels and warnings of her godly father-in-law laid the foundation of her destruction. When she was married, she added to the crime of adultery that of stealing, which latter crime occasioned her to fly to New Jersey. Afterwards, coming to reside in Deerfield, her second husband was carried captive to Canada. But the woman, in grievous horror of mind for the breaches of the Seventh and Eighth Commandment, received many most suitable counsels from Mr. Williams, a worthy minister of that place. In conformity to his counsels and warnings, for a while, she led a reformed life and seemed much affected with the word of God and the public dispensations of it. But ere it was long, she lost her seriousness, her tenderness, her conviction, and relapsed into the sin of adultery. Her first relapse into that sin was attended with a conception, which though she endeavored to render it an abortive, the holy providence of God would not allow it to be so. She did with much obstinacy deny and conceal her being with child, and when the child was born she smothered it, but the neighbors found it out immediately. She then owned the manor, but made the usual pretense that the child was dead-born and remained as poor sinners undone by the sins of unchastity used to be under extreme hardness of heart. Mr. Williams rarely visited her, but found her guilty of new lies, though sometimes violent pangs of horror would come upon her in which she detected her own lying and seemed greatly to be well it. The honorable judges desired Mr. Williams to go down into Springfield, which was a place at the time of her execution, who then found her under an astonishing stupidity of soul, and yet not pretending to hopes of happiness in another world. He found her guilty of more lies, which afterwards she confessed so to be. She slept both at the prayer and the sermon in the public assembly on the day of her execution, and seemed the most unconcerned of any in the assembly, professing therewithal that she could not but wonder at her own unconcernedness, at her execution she said but little, only that she desired to give glory to God, and to take shame unto herself, and that she would warn all others to beware of the sins that had brought her unto this miserable end, especially stealing, uncleanness, lying, neglecting to read the scriptures, and neglecting to pray to God. She had absented herself much from the word of God on the Lord's days and lecture days, and stayed at home till she had fallen into this capital transgression. Then she would come to the meetings with some seeming devotion. She had sent away great convictions and awakenings, and Satan with seven more unclean spirits entered into her, and God seemed then to withhold from her the efficacy of the means of grace and good, which his faithful servants in the neighborhood used with her. This has been a reading of Cotton Mather's Works of Christ in America, the account of several criminals who were executed in New England with their confessions www.puritanaudiobooks.net